Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In many episodes of the Seminole Wars podcast, we have focused on the overview of the wars, what caused them, how did they unfold, and so on. Today, we focus more closely on part of the human cost involved, as we let the forgotten voices of individuals long gone speak to us from the dead past. Newlywed, Mrs. Montgomery took a Sunday ride to her death. Lieutenant Sanderson knew combat as a veteran of the War of 1812, but that did not prepare him for surviving a deadly ambush in the Second Seminole War. Slaves George and Joe found themselves unwittingly put on trial for allegedly supplying gunpowder to the Seminole. And then there is Captain Gabriel Rains. He employed a prototype landmining at the Seminole, and they angrily struck back. Admittedly, these stunning personal accounts recounted from graphic eyewitness testimony and letters, newspapers, and official reports tell only one side of the story, that of the literate whites who wrote them down. Without a doubt, Seminole Indians suffered comparably harrowing experiences and insufferable treatment, as did blacks, Seminole free or slave, in Florida during this time. It was a bloody, miserable war for everyone in Florida. We shall tell those stories on future episodes. For now, we'll discuss concentrated fighting in Alachua County, Florida, as attested to by whites, soldiers, settlers, pioneers, and civilian authorities. With us to explain is Chris Kimball. Chris is the author of several books. The Army and Navy Chronicle, 1835 to 1844, and the Seminole Creek War Chronology, Seminole Creek Battle and Events. In this episode, we explore his latest, Alachua Ambush, breathes life into those forgotten voices we've discussed above. Welcome to the Seminole Wars, Chris. Okay, I'm glad to be here. Why did you write this book, Alachua Ambush, and what do you hope to convey by publishing it? Well, about 25 years ago, I was uh, compiling a list of battles and skirmishes and events during the war, and and I've republished that a few times. But I started finding accounts of battles that I'd never heard about. Most people, when they think of the Second Seminole War, they know about Dade's Battle or Battle of Okeechobee, the capture and death of Osceola, and uh, maybe a few other battles. And then everything stopped for like five years, and then the war ended after that. But that's really not the case. Uh, what I found out, there's a lot that went on after that that I, I don't know if people got tired of the war and just stopped writing about it. Um, but there's just very few references at the time that researched different battles and skirmishes. So also about the same time, I got together a map and started putting dots or pins on it, showing where the different battles are. And around Micanopy and at Alachua County, there's this huge mass of the pins or the dots uh, showing where the battle are or, or the battles were. And uh, obvious to me that that was a pretty hot spot during the war. So it's clear why you focused on Alachua County, because it was such a hot spot. But what our listeners may not know is that the county was much larger back in the 1830s. That's true. It would include anywhere from Southwoods today, Sumter and Citrus County, Marion County, and pretty much all went all the way to the St. Johns River. So it's a good chunk of central North 
Florida Peninsula. What cities may come to mind when people hear of that Alachua County? Well, a lot of people think of Gainesville, which is named after uh, General mm-hmm. Edmund Gaines, who was in the war. But mm-hmm. during the time the county seat was Noonansville, which is now a ghost town. Uh, so, uh, you know, the landscape's a lot different nowadays. Although at the time you had a lot of people moving into the area from, uh, you know, Lake City, what was called Alligator at the time, on down south. What other areas of Florida do you cross that go beyond the Alachua County lens? Well, I want to narrow the book down to a certain time period, but I had things that I ran across that were just too good not to include. Um, for example, over in St. Augustine, which is now, well, that's always been St. John's County. Uh, St. John's is uh, one of the two Florida counties from uh, when the Florida first became a U.S. territory. But, for example, when everybody or a lot of people know about Pawakachi or Wildcat attacking the actors or the theatrical troupe and stealing the costumes, well, I also found the uh, counter of the report of his victory party. He took his warriors and they went to a plantation and took over the plantation and had the slaves cook them a just a huge feast of all the food in the stores while the plantation owner was held up in his house under siege and didn't come out. And the soldiers came from St. Augustine to chase them down, and they were very fruitless on doing that. They chased them for about 50 miles and then found themselves dead end in the swamp. <laughs> uh, he had a big party and outfoxed them. Another case I write about is two slaves named Joe and George. They were I think on the from the same plantation, but they are accused of supplying and supporting, aiding and abetting the enemy, giving the Seminoles intelligence information of you know who was going by in the area of things to attack. So they were thrown in jail and they had a big trial. It was in all the newspapers and it went on for months, but it was all circumstantial and hearsay evidence. And so they are released eventually because they had no evidence to charge them with. Uh, what's interesting is that was a big court case in all the papers. And then when they are finally released, I only found one newspaper, a small paragraph hidden on page two. <laughs> that, that was uh, where I found the results. I looked everywhere, you know, so it didn't go the way that everybody was expecting it to go. Things like that still happen to this day in newspaper coverage. Uh, Chris, how did you find the material that you used? Well, I started researching this before the internet, so I was looking up county history and Seminole War history, and now that things have gotten a lot easier uh, through the state library. The state library has microfilm rolls of the Army adjutant papers, and that's where I get a lot of my material straight out of the reports and the letters handwritten by the people that I write about. Also, there's a website that, through my card membership of the state library, it's called newspapers.com, and I can find articles uh, from the period newspapers going back you know, information going back 200 years. So it's uh, really good for tracking down some of the genealogical information that way. Materials you described sound like they'd be very dry, but it looks like you found them quite entertaining, informative, and instructive. Yes, well, the letters are handwritten from the individuals. You know, first you have to understand uh, how to read their handwriting, which is not always easy. But the story tells itself. Uh, originally, I was going to try to paraphrase it, but it was written so well and so interesting that I said, you know, I'm just going to transcribe and 
reprint what they said in their own word, and that's as close as I'll ever get to hearing from it themselves. So why have you left original language in place as you transcribed it, rather than updating it for modern sensibilities? Um, pretty much because the uh, story tells itself there is that some of the letters were just so thrilling the way they are written and uh, some of the descriptions that I really couldn't improve on if, even if I did try to uh, paraphrase what they had. It, you know, I found that I couldn't really improve on, on the language. There's a certain charm in reading, uh, let's just say, alternative spelling in some of these letters. Yes, uh, it would make my, uh, I guess, my computer spell check or grammar make it go kind of crazy because um, back then there might be like a whole page of printed writing and it has three periods in there. <laughs> you have to learn to kind of break it up a little. And, uh, you know, sometimes the letters might be written in hate and so it's a little confusing what they're writing. So, um, yeah, I don't know if it's more type that was written a certain way to be spoken. I don't know. What stands out for you about these various accounts? I think it's the human story, and that's what's so interesting is that I, I write about all these people who have almost been forgotten in history that, you know, nobody seems to remember them much, and I just, as I do the research, uncover what they had done, and that's kind of the story of the war, I think. It's the human tragedy, uh, what these people did, what happened to them later, uh, what happened to their families. Um, for example, I'm reading about the uh, some of the accounts that, of course, the Seminoles didn't write down any accounts, but there are several accounts written about what they did or what they said, and the soldiers are out. They're going around what's now the Cove of the Wislacoochee in uh, Citrus County, and they're burning hundreds of acres of field, and they had a Seminole prisoner who was acting as guide, and there's one point he just, you know, just sat on the ground and said, I'm not going anymore. I think I've shown you enough. Uh, you know, and just sat there and cried and just reading that account just seemed so emotional that you can almost envision what it looked like. Um, another time, the uh, officers go to negotiate. They want to talk to Halleck Tustanugi, which is uh, one of the fiercest Miccosukee warriors in the territory at the time. And instead of getting him, they're waiting at the camp as the rendezvous point. Uh, out comes an old woman. Her name Name's old Betsy, and she apparently turns out to be more than a match that the soldiers had bargained for. It says that she is acquainted with the people of St. Augustine since the time of the British, which would mean that she's 70 years old at least at the minimum, uh, but she's able to negotiate a pretty good deal, you know, to say, well, you know, you must give us time to gather the people together. And of course, nothing ever becomes of it. But you get this glimpse of this uh, fascinating woman that's no, not recorded anywhere else in history. I'm wondering if it's uh, Betsy Durant, which is the aunt of Osceola. Uh, um, it was a common name back then, but it'd be kind of interesting to find out if they were ever the same person. Of these many accounts, which which one do you find most compelling? I find uh, interesting the the first part, the battle at Fort King, which happened in April 28, 1840. Uh, Fort King, at the time, it only had one company of soldiers under Captain Gabriel Rains, and 
the Seminoles kept ambushing and sniping his soldiers and kind of killing them one by one. Two soldiers are out herding cattle and they get shot dead on the trail. So Reigns, he, he kind of is fed up with that. So he sets out a booby trap. Now Reigns is the inventor of landmines. He and his brother are known as father of mines during the Civil War. So he develops this booby trap of an exploding shell hidden under a blanket and hears it blow off and when the soldiers go to investigate they don't find anything there and so they set another shell and hear it blow off and they go back the next day and the Seminoles are waiting for him and ambushing them. Now Rain, he only has 16 soldiers and he's surrounded by about 100 Seminole warriors and they have to fight their way out by hand-to-hand combat and make their way back to the fort and only about three or four soldiers are killed and five wounded. Two of the soldiers kind of get left behind in the hammock and have to hide there till the next day. And they're counting the warriors going by as they're leaving. And they said, we counted about 90 warriors and 30 women leaving. Now, this is not a village, but this is a battle site. So the warriors brought the women along to support them on the fight. But it shows to me also that the soldiers could survive if they used the by-the-book infantry tactics. And that's a lesson... I guess to learn for military college that you have Major Day that had 110 soldiers and they have all but three, three of them are wiped out. And here you have uh, uh, 17 soldiers and they're surrounded and they're, you know, desperate to fight their way out. But because they used a good infantry tactic that most of them survived. Chris, please go into a little bit more detail about that booby trap that they set outside. Yeah, they, they set up a booby trap uh, out in the uh, woods where the they figured the Seminoles would be hiding. And they, uh, Captain Reigns, he put the shirt of one of his deceased soldiers that the Seminoles killed kind of as a retribution underneath the exploding shell and her to go off. Then when it went off, he went back and they couldn't find anything. And it started raining. They couldn't track anything. So he reset the bomb and under a different trap or device like in a box and it exploded again and when they came back that's when they were ambushed. Some Seminole perished in that explosion? They they imagined something did but there was no bodies left behind. They counted at least uh, five of the Seminoles that they may have shot down but a lot of times the army uh, references are a bit ambiguous on how many they may have killed or wounded but uh, Captain Marine said once they shot one of the main leaders and it, he went down and they think he, he got killed and the warriors took him off. They said the Indian and stop fighting for a brief moment, which gave them an opportunity to break and run back from the fort and carrying along the wounded Captain Reigns, who nearly got killed in that skirmish. Years later, the uh, prototypes were more refined, and they weren't called landmines. They are called torpedoes when they were left in the water, and uh, they are put in Mobile Harbor. So Captain Reigns, he became head of the Torpedo Bureau for the Confederates, and first they thought that was a pretty disgusting way of warfare, but as the casualties mounted in the war, there was no more complaints. So a Reigns torpedo was one in Mobile Bay, and as the ships were coming in, they had to avoid the uh, line of torpedoes. Now one of the ironclads, the USS Tecumseh, veered off course and hit the torpedo and sank almost immediately. And of course the famous line, damn the torpedo, 
torpedoes full speed ahead that Farragut is uh, alleged to have said, although there's question where he said it or if the captain of the Tecumseh that sank said it, but since Farragut was the hero of the day, of course, the famous line is credited to him. Well, it would have a different meaning if the, the captain of the ship that went down had said it. Yeah, we say, damn, torpedoes full speed ahead. Boom. What's interesting is um, we get to see this from the flip side because we hear that story or we read it in history books and uh, we don't think about, well, who, who manufactured the torpedoes? And here's this guy from the Seminole Wars and here's some of the prototypes that he put out in the Seminole War. Exactly. And the story gets crazier from there because, uh, of course, Reigns, he was a brigadier general uh, in the Confederate Army. And after the war, he's in very poor health. But his uh, technical skills are still sought by the U.S. Army, and it's still developed with the uh, Endicott system in the 1880s that they use uh, torpedoes to protect all the coastal forts. And uh, up until World War II, when they, you know, the last of the coast artillery, uh, it's still used. So kind of his legacy lasted for about a uh, hundred years. But what's interesting is that he was still writing technical manuals on torpedoes in the 1870s uh, before he died. And in fact, he used uh, the incident of being wounded near Fort King as uh, kind of as a medical pension that he couldn't get a pension for being a Confederate officer. The United States didn't allow that and really didn't give out pensions at, at the time. But he got a, uh, I guess, a, a job in the quartermaster depot, which was the closest thing to a pension the last few years of his life, and which was kind of unprecedented, I think. Sure. Um, among these stories that you present, which one do you find is the most tragic? The most tragic would be Mrs. Montgomery. There, uh, She was an officer's wife. Her name was Elizabeth Montgomery. She was the daughter of the richest merchant uh, mercantile business owner in the city of Cincinnati. His name was Griffin Taylor, and she had ju just married, you know, uh, Lieutenant Montgomery went up and was at Newport Barrack across the river from Cincinnati, somehow met her and got married up there and brought her back to Florida. And so she's 19 years old, uh, newlywed, only been married a few months, and she takes a Sunday ride out of Micanope. One of the other officer's wives, the wife of Neville Hobson, is coming into Fort Wakahuda. About eight or ten miles from Micanope was Fort Wakahuda. So she rides out that morning with uh, Lieutenant Walter Sherwood and about ten other soldiers and they're on horseback which they're that's an important point because they're infantry soldiers they're not dragoon soldiers and not taught to fight on horseback and they're under strength too there's only you know 10 11 soldiers and so they're about halfway there they get to a place called martin's point and that's a scene of several attacks that i mentioned in the book and they're ambushed and the account goes that lieutenant sherwood on the process of getting Mrs. Montgomery off her horse into the wagon that she's hit by a bullet in the breast and killed. And her husband, Lieutenant Montgomery, was sick at the fort. But when a soldier comes riding back, in fact, it's Lieutenant Hobson, the uh, husband of the wife that they were supposed to meet at Wakahuda, he comes running back in the fort. And within minutes, all the soldiers at the fort, about 300 of them, go racing out to the battleground. And the first one there is, uh, of course, Lieutenant Montgomery. He, he gets out of his sick bed and right, rushes out, they say, even without his hat, coat and hat. And one of the officers, Daniel Whiting, describing the scene, as he runs up, 
he's uh, cradling his dead, dead wife in his arms, you know, just sobbing. And it just sounds a very emotional scene. And that was a tragedy that was published in newspapers across the country because you have a, a woman of high society that killed a tragic, uh, brutal death in Florida. And, you know, of this kind of this Romeo and Juliet love type story uh, point. And, and then you don't hear anything more after several different after several months and orders going back and forth with handling horses. So one thing I did on the book is research what happened. And I found out along the way, you know, I never knew what happened to uh, Lieutenant Montgomery. And he, he stayed and became a, a quartermaster uh, officer in the quartermaster corps, in, which he did with the Union in the Civil War. But uh, he eventually remarried three years after his first wife got killed. And who does he remarry? But probably the most eligible bachelorette in the uh, Alabama Territory. Uh, Lieutenant Montgomery, I guess he's the captain at that point. He's at Pensacola. And he marries Matilda Easton from uh, Mobile area. Her father, uh, Thomas Easton, he was at the uh, Mount Vernon Arsenal uh, west of Mobile. And he is a personal friend of Andrew Jackson, so much so that Matilda's uh, uncle married Rachel Donaldson, the niece of Andrew Jackson. <laughs> you know, you can't get better hooked up than that. And Captain Montgomery, he, he married well again. And then, you know, you don't hear much of them except they're in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And later on, they're in Washington and she dies of a heart attack. It was age 49. You know, that was considered old back then, but, but that's fairly young. So once again, he has a young wife, highly uh, high society, well-connected, that also dies at somewhat a young age. From all the accounts, which one do you find was the most unexpected as far as things that you learned? It, it was probably the, the trial of Joe and George, the slaves that were arrested and put on trial in St. Augustine, uh, that you kind of would have expected that uh, they would have been found guilty and then, you know, tarred and feathered and, you know, just in a shameless death. But, you know, that I find the newspaper article months later where they just let them go and released them because they had no evidence against them. It seems like the deck was stacked against them, but it's in interesting that uh, for, for some reason the uh, justice, you know, swings both ways it was favorable for them. I promised at the start to talk about Mrs. Montgomery and the slaves George and Joe and Captain Raines and a Lieutenant Sanderson. He's the only one we haven't covered yet. Please tell us more about Lieutenant Sanderson. Sure. Lieutenant James Sanderson, he was a veteran of the War of 1812. In fact, at the end of the War of 1812, he was... Uh, a sergeant and wounded twice at the Battle of Lundy's Lane, which was the bloodiest battle for the Americans of the War of 1812. And he was only 15 years old at the time. Wow. As soon as he got home, his parents requested that he be removed from the Army because he was a minor. <laughs> so when he's old enough to enlist, he enlists again, and he goes through the ranks, and he becomes a sergeant major, the highest enlisted rank. And this guy is really smart because reading his letters, he has very good handwriting. He's very articulate. Um, he makes great suggestions, like he's the one who recommended the Army put a hospital at Micanopy, which they did. And so he's given a field commission out at when he's out at Fort Gibson. Uh, the Army's short of commission officers, so they promote him into a, as a lieutenant. And so at that time, it's very rare for an enlisted man to get 
commission as an officer. Uh, it's recommended by everybody in the regiment at Fort Gibson at the time, from uh, Lieutenant Hobson up to the regimental commander, Colonel Arbuckle. And <laughs> you can see the letter of recommendation signed by everyone. So he's promoted. And so his star is rising, and he gets uh, transferred to Fort Micanopy. He's with the regiment there. And a, a, uh, and there's a battle called what we call the Battle of, uh, you know, it's even Levy Prairie is one of the name, and our name I've heard is Bridgewater, but we'll call it Levy Prairie because that seems to be maybe in the area it was. We're not sure exactly. So he gets a week before the battle, he gets a letter that's promoting him to as a uh, in charge of commissary and subsistence, which means he's going from a field unit, a lot of fighting out in the field, that he's being promoted to his desk job, which is pretty good because he's over 40. He's considered old old for back then, and that's kind of 45's retirement age back then. So it's it's pretty good. They got a guy not only see you know the right person for the job but he's pretty smart he's probably going to keep his paperwork in order and clean but a week later uh, uh three soldiers actually two uh, three soldiers and officer john martin are going between micanopy and wakahuda at that same martin's point where uh, mrs montgomery was ambushed or where she will get ambushed and this is a few months earlier before that but uh the officer and the three soldiers they get ambushed by seminoles and two of them make it back to or maybe it's just the officer um, John Martin uh, make it back to the fort and so a, a contingent of soldiers is sent out on horseback after the Seminoles led by Lieutenant Sanderson so they're following the trail of the Seminoles pretty much the rest of the day until it says they get north of uh, Levy Prairie they see smoke from a fire burning which is probably an ambush uh, probably set intentionally for the Seminoles to have the soldiers come over so the soldiers ride over and they get surrounded by the Seminoles and they get wiped out and Lieutenant Sanderson he's brutally murdered and, and uh, very tragic on that because they lost a really smart officer and so that's called the uh, you know Battle of Bridgewater but the I guess the rescue party or the the other group of soldiers coming up to see what happened to him finds the bodies the next day and buries them so that that was really one of the the tragedies for the army because they lost their real smart officer in that but once again you have inf infantry soldiers on horses and instead of taking their time and following standard infantry tactics. They just ride out there into an ambush. For those of us who've either read the book or seen the movie, We Were Soldiers once and young, um, it reminds us of the lieutenant who thinks that there's some uh, Viet Cong out and he just goes running off after them and then they end up getting ambushed. And you think, oh, what were they thinking? And uh, again, it comes back to you got to go back to your training and your infantry tactics and how you go about these things in a methodical way and not just run it off into wherever you hear the sounds of the gunfire. Right, and and you see that repeated through history out west. Of course, what they call the uh, the Battle of Washita and Black Kettle's Village, about the uh, contingent of soldiers going down in the ravine and uh, getting wiped out, and then of course Custer's command, the Seventh Cavalry, you know, riding out and uh, finding out they've bitten off more than they could chew. Taken as a whole, what do these stories tell us about the Second Seminole War? Probably the human cost, because you keep 
coming up to these stories, these tragic endings of these individuals. And, you know, I'm struck with these are people that I really had to research and look into and find out who they were. It was uh, not easy and almost that they're forgotten people that they may have been well known at the time, you know, like Mrs. Montgomery's, but today she's virtually forgotten. So it really tells the human toll of the war and the tragedy of that. Soviet dictator Joe Stalin purportedly said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. When we look at the Seminole War, we can look at the statistics. Eight-year war, $40 million expended. It's the number on number of soldiers who died from either combat wounds or illness. Yeah, well, uh, John T. Sprague, his book on the uh, Florida War, and he was the adjutant for Colonel Worth in the war, married his daughter even, but he lists all the casualties. He lists 1,466 casualties of regular Army soldiers of the war, and I went in the militia records trying to count how many from the Florida militia, and maybe about 200 or so, uh, but it's really unknown on that. Of those 1,466, 328 are actually killed in battle, so about um, about a quarter of them, uh, which is actually a high percentage of battle deaths. But then we're looking into some others that the records aren't too clear. There's a um, soldier, uh, he's a dragoon soldier, I believe his name's John Walsh, and it says he uh, fell off his horse. Well, I'm reading through the engineer reports, and I find out that he uh, was a courier going between posts, and he disappeared, and they didn't find him. About a year later, the soldiers raid a Mikazuki camp near where that happened, and they find his coat and pantaloons, his, uh, and the hat with his name in it. So if his uniform's there, I think the Seminoles might have got it. Right, and this doesn't even go into the number of Seminoles who died from combat or, uh, or illness or starvation from the war. Right, I've uh, I've counted the United States government removed from Florida about 4,000 Seminoles, and before the war in the 1820s, they tried to do a census and counted about 5,000 Indians in Florida. So that's about a, a thousand, and at the end of the war, they say maybe three or five hundred left. So that's uh, several hundred unaccounted for that just kind of disappear. That you know were either killed or starved or maybe ran off somewhere else. We don't know. Yes, and so what your book does it really tells the stories because all these just become um, hard to comprehend statistics. All right, three hundred out of a thousand, four hundred died of combat. So some of them, most of them, died from illness of some sort. Um, but now you can actually read stories about how individuals perished. Right. And uh, as I was putting this this book together, I was uh, noticing that, you know, the story kind of tells itself. I was lining up the information. Everything started coming together, and it started making a uh, its own story out- outlining itself. We're out of time. Chris Kimball, thanks for chatting with us today. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida.
This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.